You're listening to ReachMD Radio on XM160, the channel for medical professionals. Welcome to Diabetes Discourse, sponsored by Novo Nordisk, a world leader in diabetes care. Here's your host, Dr. Stephen Edelman, founder and director of Taking Control of Your Diabetes, clinical professor of medicine, Division of Endocrinology and Metabolism, University of California, San Diego, and San Diego Veterans Administration Healthcare System. What can healthcare providers learn from the recent Search for Diabetes in Youth study, focusing in on the Asian and Pacific Islander youth? Joining us to discuss implications of the Search for Diabetes in Youth study is Professor Emeritus of Internal Medicine at the University of Washington and co-investigator at the Search Clinic in Honolulu, Hawaii, Dr. Wilfred Fujimoto. Dr. Fujimoto, welcome to ReachMD. Thank you for this opportunity. Let's tell the listeners in general, what is the Search for Diabetes in Youth study? This is a study that is a multi-center study involving six centers across the United States, uh, including one in Hawaii, uh, covering five different ethnic and racial groups, non-Hispanic whites, Hispanics, Native Americans, these are mainly Navajo, uh, blacks, and Asians and Pacific Islanders. What we're trying to do is to find the incidence of diabetes in these different populations in youth less than 20 years of age. Well, let's talk about the Asian and Pacific Islander youth. What's the prevalence of both type 1 and type 2 diabetes? The rates for type 1 diabetes in Asian and Pacific Islanders is indeed lower than it is in non-Hispanic whites. It's about a third to a fourth the rates found in non-Hispanic whites. But nonetheless, it's, it's fairly significant. Uh, in non-Hispanic whites, the incidence rates are about 24 per 100,000 person years. In Asian and Pacific Islanders, it's about seven. Type 2 diabetes, on the other hand, is much more uh, prevalent and has a higher incidence rate in Asians and Pacific Islanders than in non-Hispanic youth. For example, in uh, youth 10 to 19 years of age in the Asian and Pacific Islander population, the the incidence is 12 per 100,000 person years, whereas it is four in the non-Hispanic white population. Tell us some of the challenges in diagnosing this group, and I'd imagine that uh, just like adults, the earlier you diagnose these kids properly, the better treatment they'll get. Yes, that's correct. Because type 1 diabetes is typically thought of as occurring in individuals who are lean, who are thin, it tends to be underdiagnosed in Pacific Islander populations. And primary care physicians tend to not suspect type 2 diabetes in Asians because Asians tend to be small, relatively, compared to their other patients with type 2 diabetes. So on the balance, it appears that type 1 diabetes is an underdiagnosed type of diabetes in the Pacific Islander population, whereas type 2 diabetes is underdiagnosed in Asian kids. Tell the listeners a little bit about this intra-abdominal fat and and why some people have a bigger pooch than others. Well, intra-abdominal fat is important in the pathophysiology of type 2 diabetes because of its tight association with uh, insulin resistance. And as you know, insulin resistance is uh, an important risk factor for type 2 diabetes. Now, we cannot measure intra-abdominal fat in in kids easily because of uh, regulations about exposure to radiation, for example. But one way of estimating intra-abdominal fat is to measure waist circumference. So it's important to be able to understand the uh, ways to measure how important waist circumference might be even in youth who have uh, diabetes or who might be at risk for diabetes. 
Well, where does the BMI percentile come into play here in terms of diagnosing? I think that's an important question because, as you know, BMI percentile is based on uh, percent of the individuals in the population who may fall above or below a certain BMI level. And as the population in general tends to get more and more overweight and obese, the people who are at, for example, the 85th percentile will tend to be getting more overweight as time goes by, yet the percentile, 85 percentile, remains the same. So when one uses percentile, I think one needs to keep in mind what is going on in the population in general. Percentile is used in the pediatric population rather than the absolute BMI because of the differences in size of kids as they, as they grow older. It's a much easier uh, number to use than BMI itself. And when you start looking at someone who's five years old versus someone who's 19 or 20 years old, the relationship between height and weight changes quite a bit as one gets older. If you're just joining us, you're listening to Diabetes Discourse on ReachMD XM160, the channel for medical professionals. I am Dr. Stephen Edelman, and I am speaking with Dr. Wilfred Fujimoto. We are discussing diabetes in Asian Pacific Islander and Asian Pacific Islander youth, a very important topic. How do these differences translate into the way we treat the Asian and Pacific Islander youth? Well, as you know, Steve, there are certain things in common among youth with diabetes. Most youth do not take, or many youth do not take diabetes as seriously as they probably should due to a combination of factors, uh, some of which may be because of their being exposed to bad lifestyle habits, others being due to peer pressure. And then this translates into inadequate follow-up and not following management plans. But there are certain things that are uh, probably more unique or common to Asian and Pacific Islander children. For example, they come from a wide variety of social demographic backgrounds. Uh, The percent of uninsured differs tremendously among the different segments of the Asian Pacific Islander groups. One example in Hawaii, the percent of under or uninsured Native Hawaiians is about twice that in Japanese. Now, you know, one of the things that has reached the public recently, in recent years, is the relationship between lifestyle, diet, exercise, and risk for obesity and diabetes. And there are some unique differences in the different segments of the Asian Pacific Islander population. As you know, you you come to to Hawaii quite often, and we have a type of fast food in Hawaii that is quite popular called the plate lunch. Yes, please explain to our listeners. The plate lunch is a meal, complete meal in itself, which includes probably two scoops of rice, white rice, one or two scoops of macaroni salad, and one or two servings of a meat dish and then some vegetables. It's just loaded with calories. It's typically, with, if you take a soft drink along with the plate lunch, the number of calories is probably around 1,500. And then there are a lot of people who supersize this, so they get a, a, a larger portion size. And that then runs the number of calories to Oh, maybe 2,000. And, you know, I, I had one of these plate lunches once, and 
They're I, delicious, but they're loaded with calories. And you know what? It was in a styrofoam uh, you know, container. It was so heavy, I could not believe it. But I'll tell you, Will, I love the moco loco, you know, the rice. Uh, the loco moco. The eggs, the meat, yeah. the rice, the gravy. Oh, my God, it was so good. Um, yeah, and of course, you Hawaiians eat more spam than any other state in the United States. Uh, so it's, you know what? We Every state in this union has their own typical uh, food, bad right. habits. In Southern California, you have all of those um, uh, enchiladas and tacos and burritos. I know. Well, listen, I'm getting hungry, so let's let's continue on. Let's change the subject. Uh, <laughs> no, but I think, you know, I think what you're saying is um, it, it starts in our youth, and we've really got to start with good habits, and obviously it starts with our parents. Let's talk a little bit about some of these other subgroups, like the Filipinos, the Chinese, the Japanese. How do they differ, how their rates because I know that when I go to Hawaii, there's a, there's a big mixture of those. Yes, there is. In Hawaii, the rates for diabetes, for example, are highest in the Native Hawaiians, which is the largest Pacific Islander population. And it's next highest in Filipinos and then next highest in, in the Japanese. The rates in the Japanese are about 7%, and the Native Hawaiians in excess of 12%. And in Filipinos, it's about 8 to 9%. So... There are differences in terms of the different uh, sub, subgroups. And that's why I pointed out earlier that it's important not to lump together all of the Asians and all of the Pacific Islanders. And unfortunately, as I, as I insinuated by the differences in body weight and body size, to lump together Asians and Pacific Islanders just doesn't make a whole lot of sense. But that's the way it is because that's the way that the uh, census Yes. Well, I, I think we, I keep mentioning Hawaii, but, you know, uh, I live in California, obviously, and, you know, I don't think you need to go to Hawaii to see a lot of Asians, Japanese, especially oh, yeah, Filipinos. Yeah. Well, let's let's go back one second and talk about no matter what type of genetic background, the challenge of these youths in terms of bad habits and getting them interested. Do you have any suggestions for our listeners to help these kids get a little bit more in tune with their own condition, which is a lifelong condition, obviously? Well, I think the, the important thing is to try to identify those who might be at risk for diabetes. And I think that the ones, the, the programs that are probably going to be the most effective are the ones that are social, uh, culturally and ethnically appropriate because of the different subgroups in the Asian and Pacific Islander population. And some of these groups are linguistically isolated and financially uh, challenged. Mm -hmm. So these programs need to take into account these differences. Now, many of these programs are already being started, being aimed at families of Asians and Pacific Islanders. And these are not only in Hawaii, but there are some in, in Southern California, Northern California, and in other areas of the U.S., and the ones that I think are going to be the most successful in terms of reaching out to these Asian and Pacific Islander families who already have diabetes or, or who are at risk of diabetes are the ones that are sensitive and appropriate to the different ethnicities and cultures within this population. Well, we should mention, getting near the end of the show, the National Diabetes Education Program. That's right. Uh, go ahead and, and mention that to our listeners, because that's a free, excellent service. Yes, the National Diabetes Education Program has a lot of materials that are not only in English, but in many cases have been translated into several different Asian and Pacific Islander languages. So I think that uh, listeners who have patients 
who fall into these population groups should take advantage of the resources that are available at the NDET website. Yeah, and I would add that there's lots of material for professionals to give to patients. And uh, we did a, a patient program for Native American Indians, and that was one of the areas where they had a specific video, culturally sensitive, and I do believe they have them in many different cultures. So I, I this is one government program that I think was worth uh, putting some money into. Well, I'd like to thank our guest, Professor Emeritus of Internal Medicine at the University of Washington and co-investigator at the Search for Diabetes in Youth Clinic in Honolulu, Hawaii, Dr. Wilfred Fujimoto. Dr. Fujimoto, thank you so much for spending time with us on Diabetes Discourse. Thank you very much. Thank you for listening to Diabetes Discourse, sponsored by Novo Nordisk, a world leader in diabetes care. To learn more about diabetes and the role of GLP-1, visit novomedlink.com forward slash DIA. For more details on the interviews and conversations in this week's show, or to download the segment, visit us at reachmd.com. Daddy, what are you reading? I'm reading about something called GLP-1. Is it a robot? No. (laughs) GLP-1 is a natural hormone that helps regulate glucose metabolism. Its multiple actions are critical to glucose control. Huh? Okay. Well, GLP-1 works in a glucose-dependent manner. It stimulates the beta cells in your pancreas to secrete insulin and inhibit the liver from releasing excessive glucose by reducing glucagon secretion from alpha cells. It also helps regulate food ingestion by slowing gastric emptying in your stomach here (laughs) and making you feel full. Like at Thanksgiving? Yes. Um, I don't get it. Is it important? Well, GLP-1 is important because it impacts the multiple systems affected by diabetes. It also plays a significant role in protecting beta cells, a key to slowing diabetes progression. Unfortunately, many people with type 2 diabetes have impaired GLP-1 secretion and impaired beta cell response to GLP-1. Like Grandpa? Yes. And like many of my type 2 diabetes patients, that's why I want to make sure I'm looking at the whole picture in diabetes. Sustained control of A1C is important, but we can't stop there. It's important to look at weight, cardiovascular risk, and beta cell dysfunction. Impaired GLP-1 physiology is also a part of the problem, and the multiple actions of GLP-1 throughout the body are critical. So, the GLP-1 robot will help you see the whole picture. (laughs) Yes, I guess, in a way, it will. Novo Nordisk is a world leader in diabetes care and is dedicated to ongoing research. To learn more about GLP-1 and the role it plays in diabetes, please visit novomedlink.com slash DIA.